0: Closer to home, going from the macro to the micro. In fact, that's what we've been talking about lately, is this shift from macro to micro and the oscillation that needs to take place in our lives. I want to do what what I'm going to call a thought experiment. I don't know if it actually qualifies as an actual thought experiment, but, you know, in terms of macro and micro, think about this. Is it inconsistent? Is it even hypocritical? For a person to believe in, say, strong borders, that people need to come into the country legally and those who come in illegally need to be sent back out again. There has to be an orderly system of immigration into this country. And then at the same time, say, work for an organization that is helping the illegals that are here to be able to get the services they need, to be able to get um, roofs over their head, to be able to get their kids educated, and do everything that they need to do as long as they're here. Is that inconsistent to hold those two opinions at the same time? Is that hypocritical to hold those two opinions at the same time? You know, normally it feels like it is, like there's something wrong here, but this is exactly what we're talking about. This is a shift from the macro to the micro. In the macro, we can say, yes, every country needs to have strong borders and an orderly system of immigration, or the entire society suffers and begins to unravel. But at the same time, for those people that are right in front of us, those people that are here and suffering, the compassion takes over in the micro. And we are moved to do something about it. We are moved to help people who are right in front of us. This is what Jesus is trying to teach us. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to see. That basically our whole lives are an oscillation between these two contexts. As long as we're breathing here, we're going to be members of groups. Even if the group is just your family, it's still a group. Anything more than two is macro, right? You add that third person in, all the rules change, the dynamics change. We're going to be part of groups, and we need to deal with the rules of the group. We need to deal with the needs of the group. And as we said in here before, love looks like justice when it is poured into the macro, into that context. It has to be justice. Things have to be fair, or you lose the group. But at the same time, we're going to experience that life even within our groups, as the micro of each moment at a time. No matter how big the group is, you're just going to be dealing with one person who's in front of you at a time. That's really all we can do. We can talk to one person. As soon as we start talking to more, it loses that connection. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Can we continue to shift between the two, the two realities of our lives, this macro and this micro? Because if we can't, we're going to come down on one side or another. We're going to, as the mind always wants to do, it wants to choose, right? It's going to choose one side or another. And if it chooses the macro, then everything's about justice, and our micro relationships are intolerable. And if we fall down on the micro side and we choose mercy and compassion, then we're going to lose the group because the group has to be about justice. Jesus is saying, can you switch between the two? You have to be able to switch between the two or life is not going to make sense. I think it was last week or the week before, we talked about the famous incident where Jesus is asked whether Jews should be forced to pay taxes to Rome. Rome is the occupying power, right? Should they have to pay taxes? And Jesus masterfully takes them from a macro argument, right? A macro concept. And then brings them right back to the micro again. Show me the coin. Whose inscription is on it? Caesar's. Okay. Well, then give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Do what you need to do in the macro, but give to God what is God's. The reality of your life is micro. The reality of your life is relationship by relationship, person by person, spirit to spirit. You can do both at the same time. Well, You can oscillate and constantly shift back and forth. But to see with a a second sight, the micro-relationship and the micro-connection, the one-on-one connection that is present wherever we go and whatever we're doing, even if we're working in policy, even if we're working in government, that we can keep that thread intact, that we can keep that central connection burning strongly allows us to be part of the solution and not become part of the problem. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. When Mary comes and pours that expensive perfume all over him and G- Judas is incensed, you know, what a waste of money. We could have taken that and given it to the poor. Jesus says, okay, you know, he didn't say this, but he's, it's a macro argument that Judas is making here. His response, you're always going to have the poor with you. These systems that are out there right now that we keep wanting to change, we all want world peace, right? When have we ever had it? These systems will always be there. But I won't be, he says. Don't deny, marry this micro connection, this heartfelt moment for some far-off macro cause or goal. Can we hold both of them in an embrace, not resolving either, but hold them and let our lives move and flow between the two. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. And these six antitheses, we've done the first three already in previous weeks, are exactly the same thing. He's shifting us from macro to micro in each one of them. Remember we were talking about uh, murder. You know, you think because you haven't murdered that you're safe, you're safe under the law. But I'm telling you, as soon as you have an angry thought, you're already guilty before the court. Now he doesn't mean that literally, not in a legal sense, but he means the relationship is already compromised, the relationship is already broken. He shifts us from just this legal fig leaf, because we haven't actually perpetrated violence on someone, we are safe under the law and we're righteous before God. He's saying, wait a minute, if you're harboring this resentment, if you're harboring this anger, it's already broken down what I'm calling kingdom. And then when he talks about adultery it's the same thing. You know, you've heard it said, you know, do not lust after another woman, do not commit adultery. But I'm telling you that if you even have a lustful thought, you've already become guilty. Not literally again, but do you see the same macro micro shift that he's trying to make? When he talked about divorce, it was the same thing again. You know, is is divorce legal for any matter? Well, that was a legal question he was being asked, a very narrow legal question. And the first thing he does is try to bring it back right to Genesis. Hey, this is the way it was in the beginning, that a man and a woman be joined together in this lifelong relationship that is intimate, that is connected. He keeps trying to bring us back to the micro-reality of our lives because that's where our lives are really lived. Can we do that? Can we continue to oscillate between these two contexts in our lives and see when we need to deliver justice and fairness and when mercy and compassion must take over and vice versa? This is how the synthesis occurs. And those contradictions that seem so big in our lives and we can't make heads or tails out of them kind of melt away because we can see how they move back and forth today it's the same thing he's going to take another one this is the fourth of the six right this is about swearing oaths making promises but formal promises take a look at Matthew 5 starting at verse 33 so he's going to use his formula that he's using for all these again you have heard it the ancients were told So that's his formula. You have heard that the ancients were told, you have heard it said of old, but I'm going to tell you something else. So you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is a footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Now, all those statements he made in the middle there, whether you're you're swearing by God, you're swearing by the earth, you're swearing by Jerusalem, you're swearing by your head, these are all, we're going to talk about those in just a second. But this yes, yes, and no, no, I thought it was interesting as well. Because that, that double is an emphatic in Aramaic. That's the way they emphasize something. To say, yes, yes. Ainin, ayin, ayin. Yes, yes. Leila, lea. No, no. Often Jesus will say, enna, enna. I, I. The double I for emphasis. Or truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen. Those doubles are emphasizing something, it's taking up a notch. Now, in the King James, this. Make no oath at all is stated as don't swear at all. Do not swear at all. Now, that's going to even make it a little more confusing for us as we're trying to parse this thing. Because when we think of swearing, we think of profanity, right? We think of what you do out the car door when uh, someone cuts you off. Then we're going to swear at them. And so that's what we're thinking. But that doesn't include the oath part. We understand about swearing an oath. We just don't use it that much in our colloquial language. But this is the context of what he's talking about. What is this all about? What are we talking about? Do not swear here. Are we supposed to take that literally? A few years back, there was a, a Dutch town that outlawed profanity, outlawed swearing. They were taking this very literally. Read this. The name of the Lord may no longer be taken in vain in the Dutch village of Strafhorst. Staffhorst. It is a so-called Dutch Bible Belt of eastern towns where religion holds sway, approved a ban on swearing by a 13 to 4 council vote. But the caveat that swearing is not banned when it is an expression of the constitutional freedom of speech may make it difficult to punish offenders. A ban on swearing can be seen as a signal, the council's proposal said, adding a change in moral values was needed to address the underlying problem. Past swearing bans in Bible Belt villages were declared in violation of the right to free expression in 1986. One other town has such a ban um, in the province of Zeeland. The Dutch Association Against Swearing, there was a Dutch Association Against Swearing, how about that, which runs national billboard campaigns to admonish the bad Dutch, <laughs> says the Bible um, outlaws swearing. And it, qui- it quotes the third of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Exodus 27. So notice what they're doing. They're taking a macro law in the Ten Commandments, right? A macro law. And they're using it to try to regulate micro behavior. And this is why it's going to run afoul of the um, freedom of speech clause, right? Because it's micro-behavior that they're trying to regulate. But even more important, this third commandment was not about profanity in the first place. Thou shalt not take the name of your Lord in vain. That is amplified in two places. Uh, in Leviticus 19, and also in Deuteronomy 23. But the context there is clearly about contracts. All right? It's about legal contracts. It's about making promises in very official settings. This is what we're talking about here. And so it's macro and it's legal. Even like the Ninth Commandment, which is you won't bear false witnesses against your neighbor, now we think of that as lying, but really what it's all about is perjury because it's set in a legal setting. Perjury is making a, uh, a false statement under oath in a formal proceeding of some sort. It can be verbally, it can be in writing, it doesn't matter. But there has to be a sworn oath and it has to be a false statement in some sort of a legal proceeding. And so even the ninth commandment is not about lying. Now we've talked about here many times that in a micro-setting, lying is not always wrong. Now that gives John freedom to to do what he wants to do, and he's told me that several times, but but that's not really what we're talking about. Dave said I could lie. No, Dave said sometimes lying is the righteous thing to do, and the shorthand is you're in 1940s Germany, you got Jews in the attic, and the Gestapo's at your door. What do you do? You lie your rear off, Right because that's preserving life but in the macro in a formal sweat setting where you have sworn and and notice what we do we swear on the highest authority we can think of well what a higher authority is for most of us than god why do we swear on a bible i used to swear on the bible i don't know what we swear on anymore in courtrooms anymore. but it used to be a bible because that was the highest authority And so that is what we're talking about. That's what the the third commandment is talking about. That's what the ninth commandment is talking about. They're talking about informal settings because the highest authority is God. And if you swear, right, you swear on God's authority and then you break that promise or never had any intention of keeping that contract, you have made God's name of no result. You have made it worthless. And that's what vain means. It means having no result. It means worthless. It means useless. That is what we're not supposed to do. To use God's name as the basis of this oath, as if that makes it true, and then make it untrue. This is what we're talking about here. And so, the fear of breaking this law is what prompted the rabbis in the second and, and third to first centuries BCE, okay, this is before Jesus, to start broadening that law. They broadened the law, and they said, you know what, since we're so worried about taking the name Lord's name in vain, making it worthless, we're just not going to speak it at all. Let's see, let's just be really safe here. We're just not going to say God's name anymore for fear of making it worthless. Now, kind of an extreme way to go, but... These were the rabbis. These were the, the Pharisees, the ancestors of the Pharisees. And so that's what they did. You couldn't speak the name of, of God at all. So the Tetragamaton, that what we see as a Y H W H, sometimes it's printed that way in your Bibles, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh in, uh, in Hebrew, no one was speaking that name. You know, after a few generations, they forgot how to pronounce God's name. Nobody really knows how you pronounce Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh in Hebrew anymore. Now, normally it's pronounced Yahweh. Sometimes it's Jehovah. But nobody really knows because they didn't speak it for so long. It atrophied. And then what happened is euphemisms creep in. When you can't speak one thing, you're going to put in something else, right? So then Adonai came in, which means Lord. You'd say Adonai instead of God's name. Or you'd say Hashem, which means the name. Or you'd say Shemaiah, which means heaven. You would use these euphemisms for God's name so you could refer to God, but without having to actually speak the name. When the law gets broadened this way, the purpose can often get lost. The purpose wasn't not to say God's name. The purpose was not to make God's name worthless, of no result, as, in a, as a fig leaf to cover your deception. And so once the purpose is lost, now all the gaming starts. The rabbis started creating loopholes that could nullify the oath themselves. They started saying things like, okay, you know, really, your promise, your oath, your vow only counts if you actually use God's name directly. If you do that, then it counts. But if you don't, well, not so much, And you can substitute other names to swear by. You can swear by the temple. You can swear by heaven. You can swear by earth. You can swear by your head. This is what was happening in Matthew 5.33 where Jesus was talking about, you know, what are you guys saying? You're going to swear by the temple and that doesn't count? You're going to swear by Jerusalem, that doesn't count? But Jerusalem is the city of the king, the city of God. Earth is God's footstool. Heaven is God's place. You're still swearing by God, even if you're using these euphemisms crazy it sounds like it doesn't even make common sense but this is what's going on you could substitute these other names to swear by and it was kind of like crossing your fingers behind your back when you made a promise when we were kids remember we used to do that it's kind of like that and so take a look at matthew 23 16 to 22 this is where jesus is this is where he's just tearing into the pharisees But he takes this a lot further. And maybe you can start to understand what was going on that Jesus is reacting to so strongly. Woe to you, blind guides, to say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated, you blind men. Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears by both the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by both the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You see what Jesus is fighting here? This willful means of deception, twisting the law to fit what it is that they wanted to do anyway. To forbid the name, to never use to swear a false oath is only going to make this place for euphemisms that substitute for God's name. And then to agree that the euphemisms don't count to bind the oath is this beautiful symmetry that they had created to allow themselves to do whatever it is that they just wanted to do in the first place. We do the same thing, don't we? Think about it. When we don't want to say God, what do we say? Well, maybe we don't say this anymore because if we can say just about anything anymore in our society, right? But back in the old days, when I was young, what did we say, gosh? Instead of God? Or we say Gosh Darn instead of G D, right? Or we say Golly. Some of the old guys would say Goldern, I suppose. And instead of Christ, what will we say? Criminy? Crikeys? Or my personal favorite? For crying out loud. Can't you just see someone who's really angry, really frustrated and they're just ready to say, Oh for Christ's sake? And they catch themselves, maybe the pastors in the room. And right in the middle of it for crying out loud it just comes out, right? Actually, it uh, goes back to the, the 1920s when that first came out, for crying out loud. But it, it's kind of humorous, but you see what we're doing here. And then instead of Jesus, we, can say, we say G, we say G's, we say gee whiz we used to, Jeepers. We're just using these euphemisms. But the difference is we're not going to swear an oath by for crying out loud. That's not, this is just profanity. This is just um, expressions of our anger and our frustration. But we still use the euphemisms, and it's the same thing. So you can understand what the Jews were doing 2,000 years ago, or even longer. But at least we're not trying to swear an oath by these names. We don't have a theocracy here. We find other secular ways to break the promises we want to break, and the contracts we want to break, but we don't use religious ones but it's the same mindset, it's the same dynamic. Jesus would be just as vociferous against what's going on here in our society as he was in his own. So what does he say? He says, make no oath at all. Now the intent of the law is for people to keep their promises. That's it, very simple. To bind us to our word, what we say needs to happen because society relies on people keeping their promises. Society relies on contracts being held. Everything falls apart if we can't trust that with each other or the law to keep it so. And the law is never and never has been and never would be merely about never invoking God's name, but about making it worthless as we said before. Making God's name as worthless as a broken promise is what the law is trying to avoid here. But once the law becomes more important than the intent or the purpose that started it in the first place, then that's when the loopholes start. Then that's when all the gaming begins. Because our our desire, our deepest desire is no longer the intent of valuing others and holding our communities together. Now it's just simply whatever our own desires take us. Very different. He says, yes and no are full statements. Perfectly good answers. He actually says, yes, yes, and no, no are perfectly good answers. That's all we need. They are sufficient. Be people of your word. Care about each other and what you say to each other. And you can put this one on your fridge. For an honest person, no oath is necessary, right? For a dishonest person, no oath is enough. So what's the point of an oath? If we have the kind of relationship with each other we're supposed to have, we don't need the swearing. Now, it doesn't mean you're gonna buy a car without signing a contract, believe me. But in the micro, where we really live, Can we be that kind of people? Can we think this way? Now, does Jesus literally mean swear no oath ever? Don't ever swear an oath. Well, the Quakers thought so, right? And if you know anything about the Quakers, but they do not allow themselves to swear any oath, not in court, they won't be a witness in court because they won't swear. They can't serve in the military because they won't swear, swear the oath of the military service. So they have taken this extremely literally, and they stand outside society in this way because they will not swear any oaths and obey the macro law in that way. But take a look at Matthew 26. This is Jesus' final trial before he goes to the cross. Jesus is keeping silent here. He's not answering any of their questions. It was a sham trial anyway, of course convened in the middle of the night when there wasn't supposed to be any such thing happening in the Sanhedrin their their supreme court but the high priest says to Jesus I adjure you by the living god in other words he's saying you swear by the living god that you tell us whether you are the Christ the son of god and Jesus said to him you have said it yourself nevertheless I tell you hereafter you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven so Tacitly, admittedly, but Jesus is swearing an oath here. He said, you swear. He answered him as if under that. Paul swears oaths. In Romans, and Galatians, in Hebrews, he swears oaths. And the Old Testament's prescribed oaths that had to be said. In Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So Jesus isn't telling us that you can't swear an oath at all. He's not being literal here. But he's using this outrageous language like he always does. This is Jesus' strong suit. Using hyperbole. You know about hyperbole? Using completely exaggerated language to make a point? He uses hyperbole. He's using this outrageous language to make the points that he needs to make. He does this throughout his entire ministry. And he's doing it in spades here in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not forbidden to swear an oath. It is forbidden to swear a vain oath. One that you don't intend to keep. That is what is being outlawed here. That's common sense. That's common decency. We all get that. That's all Jesus is saying here. But he's saying it in his own way. That just brings it to life and makes it you know, so impactful. Makes it so impactful that the church hasn't known what to do with the Sermon on the Mount for 2,000 years. But for Jesus to live in kingdom is to value others. It's that simple. Do we value others? Do we value relationships? To make our yes, yes, and our no, no, just to do that much means that we have to have an inner assurance. Maybe we could call it a blessed assurance. We have to have an inner assurance and a sense of belonging, a sense that we are accepted, Because when you put yourself out there, yes or no, you're putting yourself in an exposed position, aren't you? There's no wiggle room here. What politician ever answers any question, for that matter? (laughs) But certainly a yes or no question, well, they're going to avoid that like the plague, right? So to do that, to make your yes, yes, and your no, no you got to have that inner assurance that you do belong, that you are accepted, that somebody has your back as you do this. And you have to be strong enough to be able to say yes and carry it out. And you have to be non-codependent enough to be able to say no and carry that out, don't you? I mean, these are not easy things to do. Or else we'd be doing it a lot more than we do, right? Who talks like this? Who uses this kind of hyperbolic language? Who is this outrageous? Well, poets are. Poets do it all the time. And Jesus is a poet, as I keep trying to hammer in. If you're going to understand Jesus, you need to understand he's a poet. He speaks like a poet. He thinks like a poet. He uses language like a poet. It makes all the difference if we're going to understand what he's really doing and what he's really trying to get across. Not just any poet, but a poet who is free enough, who is unafraid enough, who is convinced enough to be able to say the truth that he or she has become convinced of. This describes Jesus to a T, speaking truth to power using simple declarative sentences, saying what he means and meaning what he says, his yes, yes, and his no, no. Crazy, outrageous talk. When he's talking about murder or adultery or divorce, he's flipping his own followers' heads all the way around, 360 degrees. When he finally talks about divorce, you know, the disciples will say, well, it's better for everyone, just don't get married. I mean, if that's really the standard, but they weren't seeing the oscillation. They weren't seeing the shift between the micro and the macro. And now when Jesus talks about swearing oaths or making promises, he's doing exactly the same thing. He's using this outrageous hyperbolic language to try to get us to see the point. For an honest person, no oath is necessary. For a dishonest person, no oath is ever enough. It is the person who holds the promise, not the piece of paper, not the authority that was invoked to swear the oath. This is what we need to understand. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. Now we build our legal walls that we can hide behind. We do that and we've always done it and we always will do it. We need laws, but we hide behind those laws. We use those laws to feel safe. We use them to feel secure. We use them to imagine that we're righteous. Right? The man who wants the next young thing and he wants to put his wife away in order to have her, but he can use the law as the fig leaf in order to do that, Jesus exposes that and says, that's exactly the same as adultery. If your intent was that, you cannot use the law to shield yourself. On the macro it works, but everybody knows what's going on. And certainly God knows what's going on. We build these walls to hide behind. And then we create the loopholes to be able to do what we want to do in the first place and keep and hang on to that fig leaf. Jesus is tearing the house down. He's tearing everything down. He's exposing the absurdity of these positions with this outrageous language of his that only makes sense when you have that ability to shift from macro law to micro heart, micro compassion, micro love, and back again in that constant oscillation that is always going to be occurring in our lives. Jesus is not here to make us safe. We gotta kinda get our hearts and our heads around that basic truth. He's not here to make us safe. He's here to make us free. And that's very different, because freedom is risky business. If you have any doubt of that, run your own thought experiment out and see where it takes you. Freedom and security are diametrically opposed. Freedom and security are inversely proportional. As one goes up, the other goes down. Think about it. The freer you are, the more at risk you are, the more exposed you are. I don't know you, but I often think about the pioneers that went west back in the 19th century here in, in America. They could just go find a nice spot of land next to a creek, you know, and they could just cut down a few trees and build the cabin and they could live there. They didn't have to sign a contract. They didn't have to buy anything. They didn't have to pay taxes, nothing. They could just do it and make it work. That's freedom. Look around. Sweetest spot. Build a house. It's yours. Until the wildfire comes and there's no 911. Until the robbers come, until the Indians come, until something happens, you're exposed. You're free, but there's no safety net. We trade freedom for security. That's what we do. As we live in society, we are trading, we are giving up certain freedoms. We are now going to live under the restriction of this law. We are now going to pay taxes to the common purse, the common good. We're going to do all those things so we can have the security that our society affords. Now, that's a good trade in balance. Even a relationship. As soon as you have a relationship with a person, you're giving up personal freedoms in order to have that person in your life. Really, to be completely free would be to be completely alone. Not bound by anything, not even a personal relationship. But these are good trades. We voluntarily restrict some of our freedoms. We give them away in order to have another person in our lives, in order to have the security of that relationship, or the security of that family, the security of that city, that state, whatever. But we need to keep in mind that to be free is to be at risk, is to be exposed. And Jesus does not shy away from this, even though freedom for the, for Jesus is one of the highest good, if not the highest good. If you follow me, you will know a truth, and the truth will make you free, free from your fear. Not free from risk, but free from your fear. And Jesus speaks of this. He speaks of the danger that is inherent in following his way. Most famously, he says, you think I came to bring you peace? I didn't come to bring you peace. I came to bring you the sword. And that sounds weird to us because he's the prince of peace, right? But the word he uses there is not shalom, the normal word for peace. The word he uses there means calm or tranquility. He didn't come to bring us calm or tranquility. He did come to bring us shalom, but that's different. That's the greatest amount of, of health and connection and, and affirmation and wealth and prosperity, all those things. But that doesn't mean we're going to have calm and tranquility. The sword represents the division that he says will start, first of all, in your own family, between the members of your family. Because as, for, as soon as you stand upright and say yes, yes, and no, no, What's that going to do? That's going to create division in those who, for whatever reason, can't accept your yes or your no. We have to deal with these realities of life. And Jesus is saying, This was going to be the experience. Look what happened in Jesus' life. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to be that free? He talks about gouging out eyes and picking up crosses, he talks about hating your father and mother not maliciously, of course, but to prefer the covering of family less than moving out into this freedom that is going to take you somewhere beyond the white picket fence that holds everything in and gives you the illusion of security. And of course, security in this life is an illusion. But are you willing to move out? Are you willing to prefer that less? He says, let the dead bury the dead. Are you willing to do that, to leave even your traditions behind in order to find out what's really true? That doesn't mean that they won't come back to you later, but are you willing to let them go now to see what really is? This is where Jesus is trying to take us. He uses even violent language to try to get us to understand how difficult it will be for us to let go of the comfort and the security of our illusions of our false self of our own projections about ourself again who talks this way who simply says yes and no it's always going to be someone who has left the safe places who has forged out on their own to find a truth that most of us don't get in such a visceral way, clear way. A person who is not afraid to go alone and to head out, to be exposed. This yes, yes, and no, no does that to our lives. But the most interesting thing that happens, because it doesn't sound like this is a place we would really like to go, right? What happens when you do leave the safe places? Interiorly, this is what we're really talking about. Doesn't mean you have got to leave your homes. We're talking about an interior movement. When we do leave those safe places, when we do let our illusions fall, our sense of ourself strip away, we find a presence that we have never felt before. In a way that is arresting. In a way that is never felt before. A quiet conviction starts to grow in us, an assurance of things that we have become convinced of. And we find that we may be in solitude, but we're not alone. We find that we may be exposed and at risk, but we're not afraid anymore. And we find that we may be stripped of everything down to an utter simplicity but we're not wanting anymore. Things change when we move out. It looks absolutely terrifying from this side of the picket fence. But as we move out, it changes within us. And this assurance comes up. And from that position, right, from that knowing of truth, we can see how freedom works. We can see why it is so absolutely essential to the living of kingdom. And then from that point, we can simply say, yes, yes, and no, no, and actually make it so in our lives. That's what Jesus is taking us, where Jesus is taking us, what he wants for us to be able to experience that connection that we can't experience from inside the fishbowl of our illusions, our egoic consciousness, however you want to call it, to break through that with this outrageous language is what can take us to a completely different space. Let's pray. Father, once again, gratitude is really our only position Everything that you have rained down on us, everything that you have showered us with, it's staggering. It's so staggering that we really can't see it for what it is. We can't see the extent of it, the radical conclusion of it. Help us at least to get those momentary glimpses. Help us to get those just tiny movement of the curtain, so that we can see another there out there that is calling us, another there out there that will take us to freedom that looks frightening now, but will be experienced as the assurance of your presence and love and acceptance always. That's what we're after, Lord. Help us to think about our own personal lives, about the promises that we make, about our yeses and our noes, Help us to practice what maybe we still don't have our minds and hearts around and see where it takes us. And Father, thank you for always being there for us and with us every step of the way. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.